0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Irene Promothe from the University of Michigan. And today I'll be in conversation with Professor Guangtian Ha, author of the riveting new book, The Sound of Salvation Voice, Gender, and the Sufi Mediascape in China, published by Columbia University Press earlier this year in 2022. Guangtian Ha is assistant professor of religion at Haverford College he received his phd in cultural anthropology from columbia university his research concerns the transnational intersections of islam gender race ethnicity and labor in china his work has appeared in journals such as the journal of chinese religions and sociology of islam and he is also the co-editor of ethnographies of islam in china and the contest of the fruits published in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Before we delve into your book and its rich conceptual and empirical material, I wonder if we, if we could just first get to know you a little more. Um, would you mind telling us a bit about your personal background and what led you to become an anthropologist, working on the politics of liturgical ritual and vocal rec- recitation in Chinese Islam, particularly within the jahariya order?
0: Thank you so much, Irene, and thank you for having me. Uh, I was born and raised uh, a Sinophone Hui Muslim, but I did not grow up in a Muslim community. I was was raised in a city uh, very close to Beijing. Uh, The city's name is Tianjin, and it used to be one of the major colonial trade ports of the early 20th century China. So I grew up in a Japanese house, not knowing it was Japanese. And uh, I, I first became interested in the sound of recitation in 2011 uh, during my PhD fieldwork. And the fieldwork itself covered uh, multiple locations in China, from eastern China to southwestern China to northwestern China. But the focus was on the intersection of Islam, ethnicity and gender politics. So the, you know, my PhD has nothing to do whatsoever with sound and recitation. So this current book, The Sound of uh, Salvation, is entirely a new work and related to my PhD. And I first visited uh, the Jahriya Sufi Qubba, basically means the, doom, the the dome. And in this case, just like, you know, the, the place where you find tombs belonging to earlier saints. And there's also a, a Sufi clerical school next to it. So I, so I visited this site. Uh, when I was doing my fieldwork in Ningxia in 2011, and I was immediately struck by the sound of their recitation. And when we normally think about collective recitation, either in Christianity or Islam or other religions, we normally think that these recitations have to be, you know, all of the voices have to converge. There have to be some kind of harmonies amongst the different voices. But what really struck me about the Jahaniya sound is that the voices did not quite converge into one singular voice, and uh, they're always slightly off sync. So, you know, when you sit inside the congregation, what you hear is the fluctuation of the voices, and there's also a sort of amorphous undulation of the voices. If I have to use a kind of visual metaphor, it's like you see the waves of the sea, and... uh, and I was really impressed by this kind of sound shape. And I was captured by, by the charm of this kind of voice. And yet I returned to Columbia. I wrote a dissertation entirely unrelated to this topic. Then in 2014, you know, right after my graduation, I received a job offer uh, at SOAS in London. The full name, for those listeners who didn't know, the full name is School of Oriental and African Studies, which apparently is a very colonial name. And the project was basically uh, focused on describing and analyzing the soundscapes of Islam in China. We have the, you know, the, princi- the, the principal investigator, Rachel Harris. She, was, and she is an ethnomusicologist musicologist uh, in the music department at SOAS, and she works on Uyghur Islam and Uyghur recitations. And we have a second uh, colleague, uh, Maria Yashok, who is based in uh, Oxford, and she works on women's recitation among China's Sinophone Muslims. And my job was to work on the Sinophone Muslim Sufi soundscape. So I went back to the Jahriya, to Ningxia, in northwestern China to conduct more field work. And the work began officially began at the end of 2014 and, and lasted until probably, I think, August 2015. That's continuous work. And then I went back each year, each summer, and I last returned in 2018. So it's been nearly four years now, thanks to the pandemic and also, you know, the politics on the ground. You know, the the Sufi school I uh, worked in had been closed even before the pandemic and the students were disbanded. And as of now, it's still closed. We don't know when it will reopen. And thanks to politics as well as COVID.
1: Got it. Thank you so much for that, um, and for kind of tracing the contours of what is, I suppose, ultimately a nascent project and its post dissertation. Just fascinating. Um, Could you also briefly tell us about how you came to write The Sound of Salvation in particular, how did some of its key concepts, especially this concept of fragile transcendence that kind of weaves, is kind of interwoven throughout the book. um, How did it come to interest you and develop over time, Um, particularly, you know, especially over these last four or five years?
0: Right. The book itself took about four years to complete. Not counting the time for fieldwork and one of the main goals I set myself is not to treat these you know Sinophone Muslims as an ethnic minority and I wish to focus less on the state and the official state politics of religion and ethnicity I mean as you can see in the book you know I try to although the state appears here and there I try to keep the role of the state as small as possible because I want to really spotlight the, the, the you know the the world of, of the Sufi world of the Jahriya disciples and I try to describe in more minute detail the religious practices and, and expose the transnational and transregional histories that gave rise to these to these practices, these sounds. And I hope the book to be able to engage with the broader Islamic studies as well as to help me experiment with Ethnographic writing, you know, as another anthropologist, you know that each anthropologist comes of age with an ethnography, right? So, you know, way I hoped to use this book as my own training ground. It's more like I need to write a good ethnography to properly feel that I'm an anthropologist. And and regarding the concept of fragile transcendence, uh, it came to me when a number of Jahniyyah followers expressed what I considered at the time a somewhat enigmatic uh, tolerance of liturgical differences. For instance, I found in my work a wide variation in the performance of daily liturgical rituals, and these variations are derived from a range of factors. For instance, a certain murshid, or certain Sufi guide, shifts his instructions over the course of his life, and his knowledge is then unevenly distributed among his followers to the point where groups of Muridun, or groups of followers who followed him in different stages of his life, do not really share the same body of knowledge about ritual praxis. Now this does not necessarily mean that you know ritual practices are so different, they become unrecognisable across different groups. And in the group in the book I described what sort of differences are created in this in this process and to what extent these differences manifest themselves and and what occasions now the most intriguing discovery regarding these differences is that many of the Jahriya followers have cultivated a unique attitude or a unique kind of mentality of tolerance which I have distilled into this one statement which is: Right? I do not know where or from whom they learned that practice, but I suppose they learned it from some Sufi guide. So in other words, one can even say there is a certain grammar to the Jahanir world that enables a Jahanir disciple to presume, without necessarily knowing, the existence of some other unknown guide or saint that others follow based on one's own knowledge of one's own guide. So this projection, in which case, that which is venerated is no longer a specific saint, right? a specific visible embodied saint, or a specific chain of saints even, but a generalized notion of sainthood, this abstraction. So one venerates the, the very idea of saint as opposed to specific saints. And in Northwestern China, like in Central Asia and South South Asia, sometimes we find tombs and graves uh, dedicated to unknown Sufi teachers, tended by people who themselves are unsure about the identity of the saint in question. And yet many Muslims would stop for these tombs and say a prayer in in these spaces. And at these moments, the idea is often that all Sufi saints, all Sufi guys deserve to be venerated. And being a disciple of Sufism means one mustn't subscribe to an exclusive affiliation to one saint in particular. So I came up with this somewhat odd concept of fragile transcendence to describe this kind of attitude or this kind of condition. And it's transcendence because it's not confined to specific saints who are necessarily known. And when the object of veneration becomes a generalized saint, we necessarily reach a certain level of abstraction which constitutes a kind of transcendence. It's weak because here the direct object of veneration is a Sufi guide or Sufi saint, not God himself. This mid-level transcendence is then based on innumerable concrete ritual practices and two and a half centuries of migration and survival uh, you know, in hardships. And it's weak because, also because not all Jahanir disciples cherish differences and we have plenty of people insistent on imposing liturgical rigidity on all Jahanir disciples to create what they think would be a strong organizational solidarity, which alone could guarantee the long-term survival of the order so we have all of these different views about what I call fragile transcendence. I think perhaps I was able to capture, in a way, the last moment of relative freedom among China's Muslims, that tiny space of freedom, allow the Jahniya, at least you know, those amenable to fragile transcendence, to nurture this mentality, this attitude. And you know, now with the onslaught of state oppression of religion, Islam in particular, I fear this unique way of treating difference has already taken a heavy toll.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, for so succinctly, but you know, beautifully defining exactly what you mean by this concept, which. Um, Really carries a lot of weight in this book, and it, it's this really in- interesting intervention in this long-standing um, question within religious studies about this opposition between imminence and transcendence, and what um, what a focus on fragility and um, even a kind of ambiguity what that might actually you know afford us and offer us. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and now we can just, you know, perhaps dive straight into the book. Um, so in the first chapter of your book titled Archeology span of Sound, you take us through the Arabic um, pedagogy of 'ah, jahriya, vis-à-vis the historical intermingling of Arabic, Persian, and Chinese sounds in Sinophone um, Sufi recitation. Could you tell us more about how the Jahriya Sufis straddle the vernacular dominance of Chinese with this aspiration for, you know, quote-unquote, clean Arabic articulation of religious sounds? in their vocal recitation practices? And how do local debates over the musicality and just the orthodoxy of um, Quranic recitation, how do, the, how do local debates on the ground attempt to negotiate these multilingual sonic histories at play
0: here? Thank you. That's, that's really a great question. Um, I may need to venture a claim which probably will unnerve some colleagues of ours. It's been my presumption that for most ordinary Muslims, whether they speak Arabic as their native language or not, the sound of religious Islamic recitation has always varied depending on their linguistic and cultural and musical background. Of course, we need to draw a distinction between different types of recitation. For example, in reciting the Quran, following Tajweed, the rules Regulating how you pronounce Arabic, where you stop, you know, where you stop, where you start, and Tajweed has been considered essential for reciting the Quran. Although, again, when it comes to what it means to follow Tajweed and the sound produced as a result of this process, we can hardly be sure, right? Some Muslims might say they follow Tajweed, but when you hear the sound, is it really Tajweed? And it's not unlikely that uh, you know, even when some Muslims again, claim to have studied Tajweed rigorously, their recitation would still not count as so-called properly Tajweed, according to some some standard. So between what people claim to have done and what they are actually doing, there may be a gap so wide we wonder how anyone could not have recognized it. But at the same time, even this gap as such probably says more about our own presumptions than about the ritual practices of the Muslims involved. Now, when we come to reciting panegyric poetry or Sufi dhikr, Sufi remembrance of God, uh, the variations in sound are even greater. An Egyptian recitation of Ibn Faris' Al-Qasid al hamariya the wine ode, would sound very different from an Indonesian recitation of the popular Qasida al-Burta, by the, the, the Mental Ode by Imam Bussiri. And the difference would be clear in both their pronunciation of Arabic and in the melody or tunes given to the respective poem. And the same can be said of you know, Maulud or, 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 or Maulid recitations, which take place not only on the birthday of Prophet Muhammad, but in many other occasions as well. The praises of the Prophet often exhibit a strong local flavor in its musicality, though the text at times remains largely similar across many Muslim communities. Now, when it comes to the Jahriya, the multilingual nature of Jahriya recitation needs to be considered in this broader context of diversity. So when we look at how Arabic is learned among Sinophon Muslims, we find that from early on, I mean, both historically and in terms of, you know, children's education, Arabic is learned using original Arabic and Persian texts. One learns Sarf, which is basically the basic Arabic philology, using these texts once one has a very basic knowledge of the Arabic alphabet. And what is remarkable is we do not see a clear boundary between Arabic and Persian in this preliminary education, students move from one to the other without necessarily realizing they are moving across two different languages. And their pronunciation of Arabic is often mediated by a strong Persianized sound, a strong Persianized pronunciation. This perhaps exposes the extent to which um, Arabic pedagogy among Sinophone Muslims has always been a try, if not multilingual process involving at least Chinese, Persian and probably even some Turkic in pre-modern and early modern times. This also means their Arabic is necessarily, quote-unquote, unclean because, well, history never was and never will be clean. There is a growing awareness of this fact among among many Jahniya followers and among other Muslims in general. But somewhat unfortunately, we also see this new awareness becoming more selective in its focus on the Chinese side of the story at the expense of its multilingual aspect. So this is perhaps, you know, compelled by the official state position that aims to further cynicise Islam in China. Islam in China is quickly becoming monolingual, unfortunately. But I know some scholars both in and outside China uh, who have been resisting this but the prospect looks rather grim at this moment we took it all we brought them to
1: our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, and you, yeah, we do return to some of these themes in um, the following chapters as well. But in the um, direct next chapter, which is titled The Sacred Circle, you pivot to a sensitively vivid, very vivid ethnography of um, the Jaya Dayer, uh, which is a circular ritual arrangement of religious objects and Sufi reciters, and in it you describe how the jahriya recitation of the mukamas gives way to a distinct form of sociality that exceeds what is visible, tangible, or sensorially perceived, and inhabits, you tell us, instead a space of abstraction, which is exactly what you were talking about just you know um, just a few minutes ago, the space of. Obs- abstraction typified by the figure of a spectral, idealized, imagined reciter. And I'm particularly struck in this whole thing about how collective ritual depends on the imagined space that the individual figure of an idealized reciter inhabits in the words and the deeds, which are sometimes you tell us also, they don't often match up, the words and the deeds of the Jadaya Sufis. And could you expand further on this tension between the concrete and the abstract between what is and what could be as you put it in jahriya recitation and how does the collective relate to the individual in this imagined figure of this idealized invisible reciter
0: thank you so much for that question irene and i'm really humbled by your care for reading and uh, you know it's you don't I mean I normally don't expect people to read my work carefully so this is quite quite humbling thank you and my 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 interest in this collective creation of a spectral saint or the emergence of abstraction through concrete liturgical practice is in part derived from a critical distance I wish to take from two perhaps uh, predominant paradigms in the study of Islamic sound at this point. Uh, The first paradigm is that of ethical self-cultivation. When one studies Sufism, especially the performance of liturgical rituals, it's quite tempting to go down that path. One can study, for instance, the regulated movement of of the body, the training of the voice, the discursive traditions that frame these religious practices, and the second paradigm is that of a more or less materialistic treatment of sound. For instance, we have scholars who adopt uh, a phenomenological approach and uses, you know, spectrogram, for instance, to represent and analyze sounds. And this paradigm often draws from affect theory and pay close attention to the tinkling of the senses below the level of conscious grasp. And, you know, I mean, you know, the kind of paradigm I refer to, because we're all steeped in this literature. And both paradigms, to my understanding, have shifted away from investigating those moments or those so-called wow moments, in the words of some anthropologists, when something irreducible to ethical practice and material sound, something intangible but no less concrete for its effective grip, emerges in the course of practices of sound, those highly charged moments, moments when a rush of energy, in quotation marks, this is Durkheim's term, courses through the collective and releases a sort of power that both makes and breaks the social. It's at this juncture where we can locate the distance between what is and what could be, between being and becoming, and between the world as it is and the world which can potentially be called into being through ritual. So, in that sense, the idealized invisible reciter is that figure who, in an intangible manner, nearly embodies, I mean, as you can hear, I'm, I'm, I'm talking contradictions here, right? Intangible, in an intangible manner, nearly embodies that sense of trust individuals cultivate in relation to the collective. The sense that there is always someone in the group who will fill in the gaps in recitation on my behalf. The sense that one is a drop of water in a vast ocean. So this sense of transcendence, transcendence through and by means of the social or the collective is what I think is essential for understanding a Sufi jahriya recitation.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And you again, you build on these themes in the, even in the next chapter, which is titled The Tempo of Time, which I thoroughly enjoyed, <laughs> where you delve into locally perceived differences in the tempo of recitation after the year 1960, which is a year marked by the death of the last jahriya Murshid, or saint. An acceleration in the tempo of the madai recitation in particular you tell us corresponds with the socio-political and theological upheaval that wrangled the Jaria order after the year 1960. so could you tell us more about how the pace of recitation uh, that you observed, and perceptions of difference in the practice of liturgical rit- ritual among the Jahriyyah, how, how peace and difference, how it relates to their understandings of time and even genealogy, you know, going back to this year, 1960.
0: I remember once speaking to a Jahriya friend about the loss of ritual memory. When a Sufi guide, or Murshid, passes away, there's always the common fear that some of the practices or Sufi mystical teachings will perish with him. He will take these into his own tombs. And, uh, and then this friend said, in his uniquely matter-of-factly manner, that this is bound to happen. It's meant to happen that with the passing of each saint, there passes a whole generation of people and of knowledge. So each generation, according to this point of view, has its own destiny, things it has to accomplish and fail to accomplish. So it's a fool's errand to try and salvage knowledge and memories that are bound to disappear and pass into history, or maybe even into oblivion. There is a strong sense of closure which I think is also undergirded by a strong sense of continuity, a sense of eternity even. It's like saying nothing can genuinely disappear, and what has seemingly disappeared simply passes into a vast ocean of mystical truth. Now, the end of the genealogy, which in this case means there will be no more Sufi guys, no more Murshidun, also means there there will be no more authorized changes to the rituals. The flip side of this is is that all of the liturgical variations that different guys, different Sufi saints of different generations passed on to their disciples will also remain as they are. And I described in the book the various historical processes from migration to exile to proselytization that created the variations in Jahriyyah liturgical rituals. To use a Sufi image, one can imagine by the Jahriya murshidun or the Jahriya saints, guys, strewing pearls of wisdom and instructions on ritual as they pass through numerous locations and communities. And these wisdoms and instructions are not rigid. They are not necessarily the same. And each community may need guidance tailored to its own specific condition. And given the intimate spiritual relationship between the Murshid and his disciples, these instructions would remain concealed to outsiders, which means in any given Jahniyya community, you may find repositories of knowledge not shared by others. These variations may well include the pace of the recitation, how fast you can go, how slow you should go. So in the book, I also described the changes to the living space, Caused by wider social economic transformations. For example, the loss of more capacious living space forced many Jahniyya followers to host rituals of recitation in their cramped bedroom or living room, where physical discomfort leads the reciters to speed up and end the ritual earlier. I also described how leading reciters had to be really whisked from place to place following a hectic schedule because the increase in population density and more sparse distribution of communities colluded to a game forced them to reduce the amount they spend on each ritual the purpose of this description is to show the extent to which both the recitation the sound and its ideological ramifications which means how people see this recitation is also in part determined by how this sound is embedded in the broader social world. So in a way I tried to show a materialist investigation of sound informed by the conventional political economic analysis. So here the materiality of the sound is not measured or represented by a spectrogram but returned to its material inscription by larger forces of political economy. So I hope in this way to link the abstract and the concrete the intangible and the material
1: wow thank you that is fascinating and the 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 move that you made there in the book to actually help you do that it's it's remarkable thank you um And now we finally move to the last two chapters of your book that deal with the crucial dimension of your project, which is um, that of gender, where you look at the gender dimensions of jariya, rich uh, recitation and liturgy. In the final two chapters of your book, you explore the structural exclusion from collective recitation and ritual life that women experience and um, in some ways contend with, some ways not, Um, in a patriarchal jahriya order, even as the male voice, which you define in a very specific way, uh, even as the male voice finds ritual credence via that of women, whether in the recording and the listening of recitations that you lay out in chapter four, or in the labor of preparing food imbued with spiritual meaning that forms the focus of chapter five, the visibility and audibility of women hotly contested yet deeply ambivalent concerns for the jahariya sufis could you tell us more about what these exclusionary logics of jahariya ritual life particularly along gendered lines what they tell us about the possibilities and the limits of transcendence and how does what you describe as a necessarily fragile transcendence among the jahariya how does that contour these gendered ritual dimensions of their lives
0: Thank you. That's really a key question because gender is really probably the key element in the whole book, although it's about sound, but gender is actually at the heart of it. Uh, Being a heterosexual male Muslim myself means, you know, how one enters a field and where one is allowed to do and, you know, what one is allowed to do and, and to see is skewed from the very beginning. You know, it in fact took me a a long time to realize that uh, what I thought was a whole field was merely the world seen through the eyes of other heterosexual men. So gender, not to mention sexuality, still remains a severely underrepresented and understudied topic in the study of Islam in China. And this has to do with maybe in part to do with the fact that uh, many of the scholars, myself included, are men, and as you well know, it's often quite hard to convince heterosexual men that their view of the world is rather parochial and by no means represents the whole world. Besides, the matter is not simply adding women to the laundry list, because gender and sexuality uh, can entirely, completely change how the world appears in front of our eyes. So it's not just one more item to be added to the list. And it's both an epistemological and perhaps more importantly, an ontological question, gender. So in the book, I tried to show the extent to which highlighting gender can lead us to see the entire Jahriya world in a new light. The matter is, again, not that we need to pay attention to women, but how can gender fundamentally shift the way we see, observe, and be in the world? So I asked in the book, how does gender help us disentangle the various dimensions of the voice? And how can voice be engendered? And here the the androcentrism of the ritual voice becomes really clear. In fact, in some cases, the whole classical Islamic debate over sound, for instance, what sounds are halal and what sounds are haram, who are allowed to recite what, under what circumstances. This whole debate is often undergirded by a certain androcentrism. One can debate what sort of male voice is allowed on what occasions, whereas women's voices are invariably excluded. Of course, I mean, this is not to say that they There have been no works on Muslim women's ritual recitation. I cited many such excellent works in my own book, but it's still true that gender remains severely underrepresented, especially in the study of Islam in China. As to uh, engendering fragile transcendence, I tend to think of transcendence as the outcome of a social process. Abstraction takes place through social relations, this applies to my ethnography, but it may also apply to the very conceptual history that gave rise to the various definitions of transcendence in Western philosophy and anthropology. In other words, come and write a critical intellectual history of the idea of transcendence that exposes its engendered production. So when some anthropologists ask, "What is? Where is transcendence in theorizing?" You know, in theorizing and criticizing the ethical turn in anthropology, my question would be: Where is gender in theorizing transcendence? So this small book, in a way, shows through a case study of the Jahniya Muslims in China that the operation of transcendence or transcendification—sorry for this for this very clunky term—as a social process may be intrinsically gendered, to the point where we cannot speak of transcendence as a general concept without considering gender. So, in a way, the fragile transcendence may actually rest on heterosexual male fragility.
1: Wow, that's fascinating, and to even consider who, in gender terms, might be able to even stake claims to that kind of transcendence. Um, and. Where its limits actually lie—it's fascinating. Thank you um, for actually, I suppose you know, starting us off in that direction um, within this, you know, within the scholarship. Um, we've sadly come to to the end of the interview, but before we wrap up, I just have one final question for you. Would you mind telling us perhaps a little bit about any new or ongoing projects you have um, going on currently?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I have this uh, new project ongoing, which I hope to officially start working on uh, come the summer. I hope to use, I mean, probably I'm in a way an interloper in my research. And uh, I'm as an anthropologist, I'm moving into history and into medieval history. I'm hoping to use Arabic, Persian and classical Chinese sources as well as images and objects, you know, such as shipwrecks to examine the essential role of black sailors and black slaves, black laborers basically uh, in Muslims, uh, medieval maritime travels. And these black sailors and slaves, these black laborers hailed from various locations and many might have been of Southeast Asian origins as opposed to African origins. So I'm hoping to explore the possibility of a pre-modern quote-unquote black pacific that highlights a sort of subaltern trans-regionalism where religion race class and possibly gender intersect so i hope to move away from the focus on trade and merchants and shift our attention to labor laborers so that's the new project
1: that's absolutely mind blowing. I cannot wait to hear more and to follow up on that um, project. Um, but for now, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode on Professor Guangtian Ha's The Sound of Salvation, published this year by Columbia University Press. And thank you so much, um, Guangtian, for your time um, and for taking us through so patiently and so, so beautifully through, you know, through the contours of your book. Um, It's been wonderful to have you here.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Irene. It's my pleasure.
1: Of course. Thank you. And this is your host, Irene Pramod. And stay tuned for the next episode on New Books and Anthropology.